This is Hannah Nordby with NDSU Adams County Extension, and you're listening to Agriculture Applied. Innovate, relate, create with NDSU Extension. On this week's episode, NDSU Extension Livestock Systems Specialist, Jana Block, and I visit about nitrate poisoning concerns. Jana comes from a production background and currently ranches with her husband down in South Dakota. She understands where producers are coming from and is a sound voice of reason that I reference on many occasions. Go ahead, grab a cup of joe and settle in to ponder innovative ideas and reflect on generational changes which can help us create a better tomorrow. You're not going to want to miss out. Alrighty, everybody. Welcome, welcome. We are back in action with Agriculture Applied. I am Hannah Nordby and I am sitting down with Jana Block today and we're going to be talking about nitrates, what they are, why they're important, just everything under the sun and more. Right, Jana? You bet. (laughs) So we'll just kind of dive right into the heart of things, starting with Can you explain what causes plants to accumulate nitrate? Sure. So nitrate is actually one of the most common forms of nitrogen that's in the soil. So plants just naturally take up nitrate from the soil um, and they use that to convert to proteins for growth. So um, under normal conditions, the plants can uptake the nitrate, convert that, like I said, to the amino acids and proteins through photosynthesis. Um, But when we have stressful conditions, and that can include a variety of situations that we'll talk about more in a minute. Um, So one of those is drought, obviously, which we are experiencing now. Um, That conversion process gets slowed up and the nitrates accumulate. Okay, so essentially, just to reiterate, Um, What you're saying is that nitrates are always present, right? But levels can fluctuate depending on conditions. Talk about how recommendations change as nitrate levels increase and those concerns become more pertinent. Yeah, there's, (laughs) as usual, everything is complicated and there's a lot of factors that affect this situation. Um, So the levels will fluctuate Um, depending on the environmental conditions, so what kind of moisture is present, the temperature, um, even things like, you know, sunshine. If we have cloudy days, things can kind of build up. Um, We also have to think about growth stage of the plant. So typically, the plant is going to uptake the most nitrate early in the growing season. And so when it's really in that vegetative state still, we're going to have the higher levels of nitrate. And that should decline as the plant matures. But again, when you experience conditions that kind of impact photosynthesis, um, that conversion process might be slowed down or altered somehow. And so there's not necessarily um, a maturity point in the plant where we can say we're absolutely safe right now. We just really have to monitor things. and. Um, kind of watch the conditions and and keep evaluating it. Um, One thing that is important to note is that if we have a drought ending rain, which is probably unlikely, um, we're getting some good shots of moisture every once in a while, but I mean, we're still in a drought situation. Uh, But with a drought ending rain or any kind of rain after rain, um, if that plant's been drought stressed, 
it's going to, that nitrate is going to be extremely available in that plant during the next five to seven days. So it's important to avoid harvest um, after a rain like that, just because all of a sudden that photosynthesis is really going to be, um, it's going to be going, but it's behind. And so the, that it's unable to convert as efficiently as it would normally. Um, we can also have nitrate levels change throughout the day. So since photosynthesis doesn't happen at night, those levels are going to be highest in the morning. Um, so if producers are thinking about grazing or haying, um, avoid doing that during the morning. You know, do that more in the afternoon. Um, other recommendations are knowing that we have nitrates um, accumulating most in the bottom third of the stock. Um, you know, raising the cutter bar can help a little. Obviously, that's challenging with drought. You might not end up having anything to cut if you're raising it too high. Um, so that can be a challenge. Um, but if you're in a grazing situation, you know, making sure your stocking rate is such that you're not forcing them to consume that bottom portion of the plant can also help kind of reduce that risk. So um, lots of considerations and lots of environmental things that can change those levels. Right. It's complicated and it depends, <laughs> right? right? As it always comes back to. Yes, you know me. <laughs> okay, now as you were talking, you mentioned how there's different environmental factors that affect nitrate levels, talking about cloudy days. On drought years, that seems to be the type of year that we're constantly reminding people about nitrates. But I distinctly remember last year when we were getting, or two years ago, was it? Sometimes, I'm not that old, Gianna, but sometimes it, they all just the muddle together. together. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> but when we were getting so much rain and it was just rain on top of rain on top of rain, and so we definitely weren't in a drought but I remember you talking about how people should still be concerned about nitrates. Um, can you just explain a little bit why that's the case? Yeah, I, you know, I think we always associate nitrate issues with a drought year because I think that's a time when people are more aware of all these potential issues and we tend to kind of forget that, that the potential is there um, even in non-drought years. And I guess I, I always go back, you know, I'm always one to err on the side of caution, so I always recommend testing even when we're not in a drought situation. But it goes back to just general plant physiology. And so knowing that the process of photosynthesis is necessary to convert nitrates to proteins in the plant, anytime that photosynthesis might be impacted, you can have reductions in that conversion process. And so anything that might affect um, the photosynthetic process so we you know like I said sunlight temperature and moisture and so photosynthesis is ideal for most like let's just say our small grains um, in that 70 degree temperature range that's really ideal up to 90 or so and once we get above that the plant you know that transpiration process will just kind of slow down and so um, when we're really hot and really dry, that's a double whammy on photosynthesis. Again, so that's why we think drought is a major issue. But going back to your comment about, you know, lots of rain, we have a lot of cloud cover, right? So that's going to affect sunlight. And so that will definitely slow down photosynthesis too. So anything that might <laughs> impact that process is going to potentially lead to nitrate accumulation. 
So it's just better safe than sorry. Make it a habit. Just check these things. And I mean, we'll get into it more later, but your extension agent there is there to help and make life easier for you. Let's dive in a little bit about explain nitrate poisoning. Why is it a concern for cattle specifically? I know that's usually when people are coming in and they have questions or they want me to run a test or something, they're livestock producers and they want to feed this forager um, to their cattle. Sure. So nitrates by themselves aren't toxic and it really isn't an issue until we get into those situations where there are elevated levels in the plant. So essentially, once that nitrate-containing feed enters the rumen, um, there's rumen microbes that will start to kind of break that down, and they're going to rebuild the nitrate. Um, They're going to break it down. It's going to actually be converted to nitrite, which is just a a similar form of of nitrate, but it's actually more toxic. Um, That then gets converted to um, ammonia, and then the microbes use that ammonia to build amino acids and proteins. So it's very much the same process that happens in plants, just through those rumen microbes in the gut of the cattle. Um, but what basically happens, so the, the microbes um, produce enzymes that help facilitate that breakdown of nitrate. And essentially when there's a large amount of nitrate present, it's very quickly converted to nitrite, which is again the more toxic element or substance. Um, and then there's sort of a holdup usually in that process then going from nitrite and breaking it down to ammonia because the, the rumen microbes just get overwhelmed. And so we have large quantities of nitrite in the system and that's what actually causes the issue. So that's absorbed in the bloodstream. That will bind with hemoglobin, which is the molecule in the blood that carries oxygen and that creates met hemoglobin which does not carry oxygen so the animal essentially suffocates kind of a little science cl- yeah. lesson that we're getting today right follow, just try to follow along <laughs> i hope I'm, I'm trying not to make it too complicated but um there are lots of steps and you know definitely complicating factors and those rumen microbes are really um what kind of makes it an issue more for ruminant livestock just because of those enzymes that are produced and their tendency to get overwhelmed by by big levels in the system. No, the rumen is a very fascinating thing and everything and whatnot. I took a class on it in college and it's just, it's really cool. And you could spend forever and ever talking about it. Yes, it is pretty interesting. But we'll, we'll keep focusing on nitrates and everything at the topic at hand. We won't get distracted by that, (laughs) but maybe that'll be a a future episode. Can you give listeners some examples of clinical signs of, can I call it nitrate poisoning or should I call it nit- nitrite poisoning? Well, we call it nitrate um, toxicity or poisoning. You know, technically it probably should be called nitrite because that's what actually causes the issue for the most part, but nope, we call it nitrate toxicity. So Okay. Yeah. yeah. So you can get into both chronic and acute toxicity cases. The chronic cases are where the animals um, are consuming, I guess what we consider a lower level, but still a, an elevated level of nitrate um, over, t- over the longer term. So they're consistently getting a nitrate-containing source of feed. And so 
there is some data that shows that there's a taste associated with nitrate and so that can result in reduced feed intake but when you think about a lot of the forages that contain nitrates so our small grains sorghum sedan things like that those are all usually fairly palatable sources of feed and so in some cases you might not see reduced feed intake but it is a possibility just depending on how much is actually there um, Obviously, if we have reduced feed intake, we're probably going to have weight loss and other performance issues, even might affect reproduction. Um, you might see decreases in milk production, but some of these things are really hard to actually observe or quantify. And also, there's lots of other issues that can lead to the same types of symptoms, so it can be hard to figure out exactly what the problem is stemming from. Right. Going back to, the, like, it's complicated yeah. and it depends <laughs> and there's multiple factors, but still yep. some little something when you're seeing those issues that on your troubleshooting list is you should consider it yeah. and think so about if it you know if you're feeding those small grain forages or grazing them um, you know that's something to be on the radar um, the other thing is you know even at that um, in that chronic case we can see abortions and so that's a really strong sign that we have some issues going on and that can occur at really at any stage um, typically, we're, we're going to see that, obviously, in kind of winter feeding programs, um, so it can be later in pregnancy even, but it can occur earlier. Um, so it just really is beneficial to know exactly what you've got going in because you can mix that off with, you know, with safe forages and usually and get to an acceptable level. There's some forages that can be so high that we really don't even recommend mixing them off because you can still get into hot spots and animals can still consume a toxic level but if you don't know that going in it's really impossible to know how much of a certain forage you should feed and to try to avoid that so the other type of toxicity we have is obviously an acute um, where the animal will likely die um, most of the time you're not going to see that it's they've just taken in a toxic dose and you know you're likely just going to find a dead animal um, if you do happen to see something um, I guess just thinking about what animals look like when they are oxygen deprived. So you might see them staggering, um, muscle tremors, you know, just general weakness, um, labored breathing, stuff like that. Um, that would be definite symptoms of an acute case. And um, honestly, <laughs> there's a strong possibility you're not going to be able to save them if you, even if you do see that. Um, obviously, check in with your vet and see what they recommend, but really the most, you know, probably the most common thing is as we get into that kind of chronic toxicity case, um, just knowing what you have, testing, and then removing that, removing that forage from the diet is probably your best option. Right. And with testing, the more you know, the better you're able to set yourself up for success. And I mean, who doesn't want to be successful? And yeah. The other thing I should mention is that cattle that are just kind of in a lower body condition or maybe have some um, potential for more disease issues that are just kind of unthrifty are likely going to be more susceptible to nitrate toxicity um, just because performance issues often affect the rumen microbes and their efficiency and so those cattle just aren't set up to deal 
with elevated nitrate levels and they're just going to be more susceptible. So that's kind of one thing to watch out for too. Right. They're already on the downward trend and this is just going to multiply that. Right. Alrighty. So let's say you were able to catch things in in time, you made the appropriate adjustments, uh, you talked to your vet, you know, you did what you should have done and you corrected the situation. You know, have there been any studies as far as are there long-term health effects producers should be aware of? I'm not a, I'm not aware of anything long-term. Um, because the issue is primarily just in that conversion process within the rumen, um, once the animal is off of the nitrate-containing feed, there really shouldn't be like a carryover type of issue. Um, some of the data on the rumen microbes and that enzyme production is really interesting and it takes them, oh, I don't know, maybe a couple weeks to kind of build up to ideal levels. That's why we talk about adapting animals slowly to nitrate-containing feeds to allow those rumen microbes to really kick up their enzyme production to help with that uh, conversion process. Um, But studies have shown that once that nitrate-containing feed stuff is removed, those microbes essentially immediately stop producing those enzymes. So that's also why it's important to not um, have kind of intermittent feeding of nitrate-containing feeds because the the rumen microbes will stop producing the enzyme and then you have to basically start that adaptation process all over again. So the management, just thinking about how the rumen bugs might be affected is is kind of an important consideration too. Right, and when you're thinking about, oh, this hay needs to be chopped up, maybe if you're like feeding it out on a feed wagon, it's just, yeah, thinking ahead, making sure you don't run out of that supply and... Right, and so it's, instead of feeding it every third day or fifth day or something like that, it'd be better to include it at lower levels um, on a daily basis in the diet. Oh, that's really interesting. Uh, you know, we've talked about it a little bit, and so I think we can agree that testing is the best proactive step producers can take to mitigate the risk of nitrate poisoning. You know, luckily, extension agents are here to help. What are some options or what are the options available through NDSU Extension? How can agents help producers help? Yeah, so most of the extension offices across the state have access to what we call the nitrate quick test. And that's just basically a screening tool. It detects the presence of nitrate. And so it's just going to be a color reaction using um, a solution that we have made up. And you basically get a yes or no response. So it's either there or not, which can be frustrating for people when they want to know exactly how much is in there right now. Um, But what it does tell us is whether or not we need to be concerned enough to send off that sample for additional testing. Truly, a quantitative analysis by a certified lab is the only way to know exactly what you're dealing with. But the quick test can be used out in the field. So I talked about how there can be hot spots in a field, and that will just vary. I mean, sometimes there's different species that accumulate at different rates. Um, Soil types can differ. Um, Even the topography of a field can change and, and might affect the potential for those plants to uptake more nitrate than other plants. Just, you know, there's lots of compounding factors. So 
it can be really challenging to get an accurate sample in a, in a field of standing forage. But the quick test can be taken out the field and you can kind of identify what some of those you know, potential contributors to that variation might be and test those different areas or different species and just see if it's there or not. Um, and then, you know, go ahead and collect those species so that you have a sample that's ready to send off to the lab. Um, you can use the quick test um, repeatedly. So if there's somebody that's in a haying situation and, you know, obviously it requires a little bit of planning ahead because you don't want to call the agent and say, I'm ready to start haying right now. Can you get out here? Give them a couple days notice. Um, ask them if they can come out and do the quick test. So ideally it'd be good to know a couple days ahead of when you want to harvest um, what the situation is. And if it's there, you know, I talked about how as plants mature, um, and even a couple days can actually help that plant kind of convert that nitrate into a safe level. So if it's there, you wait a couple days, go out and retest, and maybe it's gone. Or if it's still there, you either wait a few more days, or if you really think it's an urgent issue, get that shipped off to the lab. They usually turn it around fairly quickly. Um, in most cases, I can't say in all cases, but in most cases, um, we can work with levels. There are cases though where we've had forages that are so hot that they're really unusable. Like you would just end up having to burn your hay. That It can't be fed to anything. Um, we all love our oat hay in North Dakota. In fact, across the Dakotas and Montana, um, everybody loves their oat forage. But unfortunately, oat hay is kind of one of those that is just a nitrate accumulating forage and it stays pretty consistent even up to maturity. Um, whereas most other species will decline, we just seem to have an issue getting that oat to convert the nitrate in the plant. So um, in fact, nitrate poisoning was actually initially referred to as oat hay poisoning. Back in the 30s, they were seeing tons of death from cattle eating oat hay and that's where the whole thing kind of started. So. That is one to definitely, definitely test every year in and year out, just regardless of what just the conditions are. Just zero <laughs> day. Yeah. Um, the other kind of tool that some of the agents have is a nitrate strip test. So this basically is just a um, a color scale indicator. Um, this kind of has to be done in the office. The procedure takes a little bit of time. The agent has to grind up the forage, has to have a measured amount of water, um, has to do some weighing and some um, you know, waiting for that for the nitrate from forage to kind of solubilize in the water um, because it's actually detecting it in the water. Um, and this will give you a range. So again, it's not a completely accurate solid number to go by. And I would definitely not base any feeding recommendations on the strip test, but it is a way to kind of quantify what you might be looking at. And then I would always recommend the agents go ahead and send that off to the lab, again, just to kind of verify what they think they're seeing. Yeah, I know last week I did my first of those and I was calling you every 30 minutes and like, <laughs> am I doing this right? Should I be doing that? And, oh, and then, yeah, just trying to decide, is it, this shade of pink or this shade of pink or maybe it's that shade of pink. Right. I mean, it definitely is. There's a tendency for a little bit of human error there just in interpreting the sample. And so um, I like it because it helps 
give an additional piece of information, but again, we have to get that sent off to the lab so that we really know what we're dealing with because um, there's always sources of error in there. So. Right, exactly. And I mean, again, the lab analysis, if you're developing a free feed ration later that winter and everything, I mean, that's what I need if people come in and they want me to do a cow bites feed ration. I'm like, well, we need to make sure we got those lab analysis so I can, you just know exactly what they're eating and right. how to mitigate that risk and everything. With that being said, uh, I always say crap in is crap out. <laughs> what steps need to be taken when gathering a sample to ensure a reliable test result? Yeah, the variability of the sample, like I've mentioned a couple times, is, is really probably the biggest source of error that we have, um, just because of all those hot spots. Um, standing forage, especially when you're thinking about grazing, um, can be really challenging because we don't know exactly what the animals are going to select, and so you're just trying to do the best job you can of kind of representing what's out there. and so. We represent, you know, we recommend walking in a zigzag pattern across the field and just trying to sample, you know, getting a good um, representative sample as, as much as you can. Um, clip at ground level because, again, we want to make sure we get that lower uh, portion of the stem included. But we will, we will want to send off the whole plant because the animal will be consuming the whole plant. So, um, just trying to represent that. Um, if we have a situation where people have already harvested some of these forages, I would recommend getting a bale probe, and you can get that for most of your extension offices. Um, you can just check it out, borrow it. Um, get at least 20 core samples from each lot of hay. And what's a lot, Hannah? I'm going to put you on the spot. Oh, yeah, well, we'll see if I remember correctly, but it is um, a group of bales that have all been like they were hayed and bailed up like the same during the same time period right in yep. which like maybe all in the morning or is it a day hour 48 okay there yep. we go 48 yep. hours re-emphasizing 48 <laughs> hours two days and from the same field and so right. you know and there's some there's some wiggle room in that if you have some the fields that are adjacent and are the same soil types and the same species if you want to combine you know if you would feed that together you know do that but just again think about getting the best representative sample and making sure you've got at least 20 core samples is the best way to do that the other thing i would throw in there is as long as you're submitting your sample why not go ahead and get it tested for your protein and energy and maybe your minerals or whatever else you're looking at so that you know exactly what you're dealing with in, in terms of forage quality Again, setting yourself up for success. Now, does the time of day matter? As far as, far as nitrate goes, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be highest in the morning. So, you know, if you, if you want to know what your levels might be. Um, worst case scenario? Worst case scenario, you could harvest in the morning or do mm -hmm. your check in the morning. Um, and then... You know, just know that and check again maybe in the afternoon and see if they've gone down or disappeared. It's obviously hard to know for sure across a field because you're not going to sample the same plant, right? So, mm -hmm. um, 
that's why we just kind of say harvest and graze in the afternoon to make to mitigate that risk. But and so like ideally you'd probably want to do the sample at that same time when you were gonna harvest. Be cutting it yeah. and yeah. Yep. That makes sense. And then I'm assuming also we were talking about the effects of rain. So if you have a rainstorm that comes through waiting five to seven days um, yep. before you take that sample or and then you start thinking about cutting it down. or Right. Yeah. Okay. Alrighty. Bullet points. Done, done, done. Alright. As we start moving towards wrapping things up, what do you want the key takeaway for producers to be. I know what my key takeaway is. What's your key takeaway? I guess mine that I have kind of always said since I started dealing with nitrates is test, don't guess. <clears throat> and it seems like some producers like to do the tip test, we call it, where you send something out to graze and just see what tips over. Um, if you have a really rotten cow that you'd like to get rid of anyway, that might be an <laughs> ideal strategy, but um, usually that's not, <laughs> that's not the way to go. So. Testing ahead of time, um, we have a really good publication that, you know, kind of outlines a lot of the different strategies, management strategies for your forage management and also on the livestock side. So that's a good one to check out. Um, basically, if you've got small greens, um, sorghum sedan, even millet. Um, and especially um, oats. Oats, yeah. Um, the brassicas, so people with cover crops, it can actually accumulate in those. Um, and then typically, you know, not in our rangelands, it, you know, none of our like cool season, our grass species don't accumulate nitrate. But if we have weed infestations, um, kochia, Russian, Russian thistle, um, pigweed, those are all, you know, some real accumulators. So. Um, I actually, in my previous life as an extension agent in Montana, I had a producer that tipped over five bulls in his corral. They were just there overnight, and there was kochia in the corral, which is a pretty standard occurrence. He never dreamed that they would eat that kochia. To, I mean, he didn't think about testing it and didn't dream that that would even be an issue. It came out the next day, and all of his bulls were dead. Again, that stuff can hit you really hard if it's if it's that high of a level. So, yeah, I mean, just something commonplace that could have been prevented, you know, had he even had it even crossed his mind. Right, so and I'm it was a sure. terrible loss. <laughs> and I imagine it probably was a drought year too, and it was just like not what that producer needed to wake up to that day. Yeah, the other thing to uh, remember is that water can can be a really toxic source of nitrates too, and everything is additive. So if you're getting your feed tested, that nitrate analysis is part of a standard water quality analysis, and so it's a really good idea to test your water. Um, the, the water doesn't, the water nitrate doesn't have to go through any type of a conversion process. It's readily available in the rumen, and it's very quickly absorbed, and so that can really cause an issue if, you know, just depending on the placement of your well, um, how deep it is, um, how much stuff is kind of translocating through your soil. Um, just get that tested and make sure you know what's going on with it. Yeah, no, that makes complete and total sense. My key takeaway is just that people should remember crap in is crap out. Right. Period. <laughs> Drop point. the mic, walk away. <laughs> Alrighty, now for my final question. We've mentioned it a little bit, 
it's a tough year. We're experiencing some pretty extreme drought conditions. What is your best advice or maybe like a saying that you remember throughout the years when it comes to drought management? Um, I guess I would just say have a plan. I, and I mean, there's so many things that come up during a drought. It's not just one thing. It is literally everything. I mean, and we've seen that in the last couple of weeks, for example, with these blister beetles that all of a sudden we're tipping horses over and, you know, it, it's kind of one of those things that they've been around forever and it just seems like in a drought year everything becomes more of an issue than it would normally. Um, blister beetles just kind of very off track but they kind of follow grasshopper populations mm -hmm. because the larvae eat grasshopper eggs so we can probably expect more of that next year and so it's yeah, you can have a great plan in place, but you also have to be prepared to punt when things like that come up. Right. Life so. is so good at throwing you curveballs out yeah. of left field. Yeah, definitely. So I would just say we know that during drought, we're going to have more issues with health management of livestock just because of concerns with our feed and water sources. So consistent monitoring of livestock health and performance and consistent testing of our feed water okay well perfect thank you jana thanks i really appreciate it and uh we'll catch you next time sounds great thanks if you found yourself tapping along to our theme music those rights go out to chuck suki he sure can write a catchy tune thursdays are launch days for new episodes a final thanks to nolan dix over on the mix board hair and makeup by country style Coffee provided by George's and the Owl, sure to keep you wide-eyed from sunup to sundown. And of course, to you, the listener, for your continued support. Agriculture Applied can be heard wherever podcasts can be found. If you're having trouble or have any sort of question, give me a call at 701-567-2735 and just ask for Hannah. Until next time, take care. Thank you.